I thank you for all the reminders and the music this morning. And now I pray that as we gather around your word, that you would help me to be accurate and clear. I pray, Father, that you would help me to explain the single most important message we have to share. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So several years ago, I had a job that required me uh, to go to a very specific neighborhood, knock on a door, and when somebody answered, I would say, well, do you have a few minutes for me to share some information with you? No, I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness or a door-to-door salesman. Uh, I was representing a firm that wanted, uh, that had bought some property in the area uh, and really wanted to start a project, uh, but to do that, it really needed the, uh, the blessing of the community. And so I would tell them who I was. I had charts and graphs. I had some pictures to show them and a lot of information. Now, if I wasn't doing that, going door to door, I was uh, outside of a local business uh, trying to accost people as they went in and out of that business, uh, asking if they would take a minute to talk to me uh, about this project. And uh, I would begin to tell them about the uh, 500 construction jobs, the $20 million of taxes it was going to bring into the community, the 300 to 350 full-time and part-time jobs it was going to bring. If I wasn't outside a business or I was at somebody's home, I was on the phone talking to somebody or I was uh, sitting in on a local uh, uh, commercial or a a local uh, planning committee uh, in the town that this was going to be in. But I remember one time I was outside of a local business. In fact, I think it was a Walmart. Uh, It just so happened that day my boss was with me and, uh, and somebody had stopped to talk, and instead of saying that there were going to be 500 construction jobs and three to 350 full-time and part-time jobs out of this project, I said this project was going to bring eight, over 800 jobs to the community. And after the gentleman left, my boss pulled me to the side and said, you can't say that. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you, you have to. He said, ethically, we need to make sure these people know that construction jobs are temporary. Uh, and we need to make sure that they know that some of those three to 350 jobs are going to be part-time. He said, we have ethical reasons to say that. He said, we certainly have legal reasons. We have to make, the, make sure that what we're saying to people is accurate. Now, we have been talking about being a fruitful people and being a fruitful church. And for three weeks, we talked about really the foundations of being able to be those kind of people. We needed doctrinal foundations. We needed to know who we were. We need to know who God is. We need to know what kind of world we're living in. We talked about how uh, last time how the Bible gives us all the direction and all the equipping we need to minister in whatever time and place that we find ourselves in. But we also talked about how the gospel needs to be our DNA. It needs to be uh, all the nutrient in the soil for things to grow. In order for us to be that way, though, we need to know the gospel. And you say, Pastor, this is a good church. We are people who, uh, who talk about the gospel and we teach the gospel. What do you mean we need to know what the gospel is? Well, I have found over the years that many people struggle to define the gospel. What is this good news that we have to share with each other? Uh, what is this good news we have to share with our neighbors? What is this thing that is supposed to be at the center of our lives and the center of our church? And so this morning, I want to walk you through the gospel. Now, I'm going to do a couple of things different here. I'm kind of going outside of my comfort zone. Instead of one text and explaining that text, uh, we're going to use four texts. 
And then what I hope to do is then show you how that particular idea in the gospel actually is significant in sharing the gospel. And then after that, I hope to give you some helps and tips. Of course, I can't come up with every scenario and every circumstance, but hopefully give you some help as far as finding ways to share the gospel with those around you. So let me give you the four parts of the gospel so that we can be accurate with what we say. Four parts of the gospel, four points this morning. Number one, number one, we go back to Romans chapter one, verses 16 to 18. Number one, everyone is accountable to God. Everyone is accountable to God. We were in these verses just a few weeks ago as we talked about uh, the centrality of the gospel. But I want to come back to two major statements. First, in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Then go down to verse 18, and he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so these two phrases, these two ideas are establishing something very significant. That we as human beings are not autonomous. That we have not been left to ourselves to decide the morality of the universe. We've not been left to ourselves to decide what is right and wrong. What these texts establish, first of all, if you're a Christian this morning... If you have the confidence you're going to go to heaven when you die, if you have the confidence you're going to be resurrected in the last day, God did that in your life. God is the one who has saved you. But this morning, if you are not confident you're a Christian, you're not confident you're going to heaven, you're not confident you're going to be resurrected in the last day, the thing that condemns you is God. It is not me, it's not this church, it's not anything other than God himself. And so the idea there is that if you're saved, God saved you. If you're condemned, it is God who has condemned you. And the idea is that we are all accountable to God. This is why we use the phrase, Jesus is Lord. You've heard me say this many times. That God is the only being in the entire universe who has the right to establish what is right and what is wrong. And there is no power, there is no person, there is no individual culture or people that can overrule God's authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. Now, a, a few years ago, I was reading the biography of one Bob Bickle. Anybody here know who Bob Bickle is? He was a pretty big deal in the 1980s. He was the campaign manager uh, for two congressional uh, runs, and both of the men that he managed uh, made it to Congress. And then he was called up to run the campaign of one Walter Mondale. And, uh, of course, if you know your history, Walter, Walter Mondale lost and lost badly. And so he was pretty much out of that game and got called by a number of networks to come and be one of those talking heads. He was going to be the expert. Um, but Bob, who was in high demand, had a problem. Bob was a significant, or I should say he was a, a, a violent alcoholic. He was also a serial adulterer. In his biography, he talks about all the ways he justified cheating on his wife again and again when he spent time in D.C. But the thing is, Bob Bickle also grew up watching his father do that. 
His father was an alcoholic. His father was one who committed serial adultery. And he watched as his dad tried again and again to kick the habit, again and again to reform his life. And Bob was just following the same uh, examples. Until one day, he was invited to come be a talking head on Fox News. And he walked, he tells the story in his book. He walks in, and the first person he meets is, a, is an anchor whose name you probably know, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. And that anchor had seen Bob, knew Bob well, said, hey, you need to come into my office. And in that office, that anchor shared the gospel with Bob Bickle. And Bob shares that the thing that he needed to hear, the, the part of the gospel that he first needed to know, was the reality for all of his alcohol abuse, for all of his adulterous affairs, he was going to be accountable to God. Anybody know the name Pat Summerall? Known as, he was a very famous sports broadcaster. He was uh, famous mostly for his time partnering with John Madden, if you know that name. He too has a book in talking about his conversion to Christ. He was a severe alcoholic. And he talks about at the center of the message of the gospel that he needed to hear was the reality that his life was going to be accountable to God. And I have men, I I know men that are in uh, jail ministries and juvenile ministries, and they'll tell you one of the most important things that they have to say to those behind bars is the reality that they will be accountable to God. Now, how do you bring that up? in a normal, everyday conversation. Well, perhaps you've had a mom come to you and say, you know, I'm really struggling with whether or not I'm being a good enough mom. Or maybe you've had a guy show up and and talk about him struggling being a husband in his marriage. And their feelings of guilt or their feelings of shame are very real. How does the accountability to God speak to that? Well, you have an opportunity to say something like this. That we all struggle with moments where we wonder whether or not we're good enough. And the thing that you and I have as believers is the opportunity to go back to the Bible and see whether or not what we're doing is wrong. And if it is wrong, we can go and get forgiveness. But we can also go, because we're accountable to God, see the things we're doing right and be encouraged by it. We can do this in our parenting as we speak to young children. We can say, you know what? There are moments when we have to say no to our passions. When you want to bite or hit or yell or insult your brother and sister. We say no to those passions. Why? Because we are ultimately accountable to God. And so this is an important part of the gospel. And it certainly can find its way into conversations that we're having with people. But that brings us to number two, the second part of the gospel. We go to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Our biggest problem is our rebellion against God. Number two, our biggest problem is our rebellion against God. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago in Romans chapter 1, a summary of the human race. That whatever culture you go to, whatever time and place, you will find idol worship, you will find sexual deviance, you will find human oppression, you'll find war. But then you go to chapter 2, and the Bible turns its attention to the religious people of the world. 
You see, there's the general population that's doing all of these things wrong, but there's always this group of religious people, a small minority, standing on the sideline going, at least we're not like them. Well, the Bible has something to say. It says to them, but if you're a religious person, particularly in this case, the Old Testament Jews, if you're a religious person, the reality is you're full of the same sin. Just just don't assume that just because you're religious and just because you have good works in your life that you are not as much filled with this same corruption. He puts it like this. He says, you know what? If you're a non-religious person and you're malicious or a gossip, you're in rebellion against God. But if you're a religious person and you're malicious and you're a gossip, guess what? You're in rebellion against God. And that is why we get to the text in verse 9 of chapter 3. For all are under sin, both Jew and Greek, both religious and non-religious. One of the most interesting biographies I like to read are biographies of people who have been converted who have already had what you would consider a very successful life. So not like Bob Bickle, who struggled with alcoholism and, and serial adultery, but just people who, for the most part, have been, been pretty successful. In fact, about a month ago, uh, I read the conversion story of a gentleman who was quite successful in Hollywood as a graphic artist. And uh, he talks about how uh, he spent summers swimming in Drew Barrymore's pool. He talks about having dinner with people like Adam Sandler and Christian Bale, Uh, He had a romantic partner, a wonderful apartment, and a great neighborhood in L.A. He said, and we didn't even have work. He had so much money. He said he would just go shopping. He didn't need clothes. He'd just buy things because he didn't have anything to do. But then one day, he got an invite to church. Now, he really wasn't into church, was not a religious person, but something drew him there. Sat down, he said, nobody knew who he was. And the pastor got up and shared the gospel. And he said, all I did was weep. Because even though he didn't have all of the normal life problems, he had the kind of life that most people just kind of dream about. He didn't deal with the struggles and circumstances that most of us have a tendency to deal with. He had most of those issues worked out in his life. But something in his soul, when it heard the gospel, understood that there was a great big problem. And he knew that great big problem was real for him. So then how do we talk about sin being our biggest problem? The world likes to tell us all about what our big problems are, doesn't it? Your biggest problem is a lack of a romantic partner. Or maybe your biggest problem is your romantic partner. Maybe your problem is your boss. Or maybe it's a teacher who's not fair. A a pastor who isn't uh, nice enough. A parent who... Who, who sets too many limits. Your biggest problem is you're too tall, you're too fat, you're too short, you're too whatever. You have friends, you have family. I know at some point you've probably had conversations in the midst of brokenness. What I mean is you've probably had conversations in the midst of, of maybe a life-altering situation, a life-altering event, a life-altering problem. And you see, the thing is, is you don't always have to have the solution. They might come to you with a problem, but, but you really don't have to have a solution to that problem. 
What you can say to them is this. We live in a broken world. But maybe I haven't faced what you're facing right now. But when I face difficulties, when I face hardships, the fact that I know that my biggest problem is already solved means I can face those things with hope. Many times, whether it's financial struggle, a relational struggle, or just general frustration, those opportunities can come, and we can talk about how God says we have a bigger problem than our budget, a bigger problem than somebody hurting our feelings, a bigger problem than just general frustration. That brings us to number three in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Number three, God's solution to our biggest problem is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God's solution to our biggest problem is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the text here in chapter 3, probably the most important word you would find there is the little word, now. The Bible's saying here there is now a way to be righteous without having to be absolutely perfect. There is a way to be considered a good person by God outside of you having to do all the right things. There is a way for people to be declared innocent instead of guilty outside of having to work off their debt. So what is this way? Well, the Bible says to you, you can be a good person. You can be declared a good person by God through his kind gift of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The text goes on to say that it is Jesus' blood that paid all of it. It is this way of salvation that came about because of divine forbearance. Literally, the text is telling us that generation after generation, God put up with sin so that he could save us. You might know the name Nabil Koresh. He was the son and grandson of very devout Muslims. He He considered himself a devout Muslim. And the first time he heard the gospel... The gospel of Jesus, he heard it in med school. He's considered himself a normal, happy guy, just a religious Muslim. Well, he he made this Christian friend who shared the gospel, shared this particular issue, this particular point, saying that the the issue of sin, see, as a Muslim and as his Christian roommate, they agreed there was a problem of sin. People were evil. But his friend was proposing that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fact that God provided that solution. God provided the solution to that problem. And so he talks about going home, talking to his dad, talking to his grandpa. He wanted to know what was really the Muslim answer to sin. He looked up all the books he could find, lectures by Muslim scholars. He attended Muslim versus Christian debates. And he finally came to the realization, to the answer. What Islam offered him was a list of good works, whereas impossibly it would be enough that Allah would accept him. And he realized the gospel of Jesus Christ did not offer that. The gospel of Jesus Christ offered a truth that said the God of the universe provides the solution he needs to be acceptable to God. Now, in my time in ministry, I'm going to tell you the truth. This is probably the easiest and the hardest part of the gospel to share. 
It's easiest to share because as a Christian, we should rejoice. Our hearts should be warmed. We should be happy to tell people that, that God has already provided the solution through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. But I can tell you through experience, though I don't know if I quite understand it, that this is the part of the gospel that people have the hardest time believing. I've told you before, most of your neighbors, your friends, your family members who are not Christian have the perspective that Christianity is nothing more than a list of rules. They have the perspective that Christianity is just one more way that if you follow it, you can be a good person, a positive member of society. Your family, friends, and neighbors who are unsaved would rather you say to them, here's what you need to do to be a good person, than say to them, everything you needed has already been done. There's nothing left for you to do. The reality is, on Wednesday night, the vast majority, I shouldn't say vast, but the majority of the children that are coming to our Awana program come from broken homes. And in many cases, mom and dad have made some very selfish decisions. And those kids have been put in impossible situations. Some of them carry a burden thinking that all of it is their fault. But we have good news. And not only good news that can save them, bring them, and let them know the God of the universe, the perfect Heavenly Father, but a message that tells them, you know what, it is possible. It is possible to show the deepest sense of love. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is, it is possible to love those who have even given us or gone to us great harm. For that is the example we have in Christ. And we need to say to our church kids, because self-righteousness has a tendency to leak right in. That they are not right with God because of their attendance in Awana and their memory verses or because they go to church or because their parents are awesome people. They are only right with God because God did what was necessary. And the next time, adults, that somebody says to you, I'm not perfect. You need to reply, and that is why God provided a solution. And that brings us to number three. Or number four, sorry, number four. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Faith in God's solution through Jesus is what saves. Faith in God's solution through Jesus is what saves. Now, interesting, Paul is going, or the the Bible does very much separate the solution from the application of the solution. You see, it's not just enough to know, a person must apply. Notice in verse 1, he says, We have been justified or declared pardoned by faith. And thus we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Then verse 2, faith in Jesus gives us access to grace, a grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, the idea here is that knowing the message and applying the message is different. Every society knows this. Every society knows there is a difference, or there can be a difference, between what a person says they believe and what they actually apply. 
Now, in our culture, the English word we use is what, church? Hypocrite. Person comes to you and says it's wrong to lie, but they lie to you. They're a hypocrite. They present themselves as an honest person, yet instead they are, in fact, a liar. And so it's not just that we, you have to know the message. The reality is one must put faith. The word faith means to rely upon. Salvation is by faith. You see, we don't just know that Jesus is the answer to our biggest problem. We are reliant upon Jesus to be the answer to our biggest problem. And if we say we believe, yet we don't rely on him to be that solution, we are still lost in our sin. It is not enough to know. One must rely. For you to know and not rely is to reject, to turn away this answer. When Carol and I ministered in West Virginia, I'll tell you what, it was really hard to find somebody who had never been to church. I'd, I'd say, hey, you know, can I, can I talk to you about coming to our church or talk to you about Christianity? And they would, they would almost always, I, I would have to say 99% of the time, people would respond with, I've already tried that. Already been there. And if they were willing to continue the conversation, I would try to dig a little deeper. And really what I found out is what they meant was they went to church, perhaps got involved in a ministry. Maybe they even listened to Christian music or even read their Bible, thinking that was what was going to save them. Their ideal of what a Christian was is the way they were living and thinking that was the answer. And what you find out is they were still trying to save themselves. The gospel message that salvation is found in relying on Jesus Christ means you have to rely on him to be the complete and total answer to your sin problem. And in many cases, what you find when you would talk to these people in West Virginia, you would find it was really never applied. And let me tell you something. This is, if you want to pray for revival, if you say we really need revival in the land, this last truth, point four, is the key to revival. In the Old Testament, the word revival is typically something that happened to God's people. Not to the world generally, but to to those who already professed to know him. The Old Testament teaches us that that, that God's people can go through cycles of spiritual decline, that we can slip into self-righteousness, and that there are times when we need to be called back to our first love. And understand that relying on Jesus Christ for our salvation isn't just for the moment of conversion. It is for every day. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe that you have a granddaughter or a grandson who made a profession of faith years ago. You have a Christian spouse. All of them, they're going to struggle in their sin. And the thing that they, they need to hear is not advice about how to get their life together. The thing they need to hear is the reminder to rely on the blood of Christ who, that has already paid for that sin. They will never break their sinful habits. I have never, as a pastor, seen anybody ever break a sinful habit until they love the Lord more than they love their sin. And they only come to love the Lord when they realize that his blood has paid it all. 
There's nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing left to do. Just accept it. Now we have to have a reminder in here that the Holy Spirit's always going to make the ultimate application of the heart. I've been in churches where where, where cranky old men, we don't have any of those, right? I've been in churches where cranky old men, they sat in the background, never, you know, just sat there in the back like this. And then one day, walk forward with, you know what? I think I need to become a Christian. Years. And then suddenly something, the the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them. Maybe it's not dramatic. Maybe it's just a, a quick, quiet moment when they go, aha. Unfortunately, for all good intentions, there is no sinner's prayer that can apply salvation. It's always the supernatural regeneration of the heart. Now, we can, we can help people make their first steps in their journey through helping them through perhaps something like a sinner's prayer, but the reality is until the heart turns and believes and is reliant upon the blood of Christ, puts their faith in Christ being the ultimate solution to their biggest problem. They will not be a Christian. We have to rely upon God for any person's conversion. But as we saw last week, they can't believe unless they hear. And how will they hear if no one ever shares? So in order to be a fruitful people, if we're going we're gonna to live in a way to produce things in our lives that are going to outlive us, we need to be well equipped to share the gospel. These four points should be so familiar to us that we can bring them into any issue of life. And the reality is, as First Baptist Church, there should never be a Sunday school lesson, an Awana lesson, a song service, a Bible teaching format, any of those that is not hitting on parts of the gospel. If we, want gospel, if we want revival, if we want gospel renewal, then everybody has to be on board. If we want to see the nominal Christian's heart set afire for Jesus, then we need gospel renewal. If we want to watch as people are awakened to the truth of the gospel, then we, in our lives and in our church, need gospel renewal. These Four parts of the gospel, they have to be what we, uh, we say. This is the, the, the importance of accuracy. Now, it doesn't have to be robotic, word for word, as hopefully I've shown you this morning. We don't, we don't have to go through a dialogue of some type. We should be so familiar that we can bring these things into any conversation. Because I guarantee our fruitfulness in our lives, our fruitfulness in our church, it's always going to be limited. If we're not making the gospel of Jesus Christ the message, and we're not being accurate with that message, we'll always be limited. But what we really want is to be fruitful. Let's pray. Father, review for most of us, in fact, for many of us. I pray, Father, at the very least, we find joy again in rehearsing the gospel, the truths that we find in your word, the, the great and joyous message that we have for those around us. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who perhaps has heard this many times, but yet has not truly put their faith 
And Christ being their final and complete and total solution, I pray they would do that today. I pray your Holy Spirit would give them the power to do that today. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunities that you give to us. I pray you would open our eyes to those opportunities and we'd be ready to share even a small part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.